Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 22, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I am Jeff Hallish. I'm here with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing excellent. I'll be doing much better after Thursday when I get my internet changed. <laughs> All right. That'll be awesome. Uh, hopefully, we'll make it through this episode. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Among the other issues. So um, so anyway, so what's going on in the hard drive world nowadays? Well, it's it's staying just as busy as ever. You know, we still get our constant flow of, of drives coming in for recovery. Uh, I'm still doing plenty of training stuff, and I have some forensics cases. I have uh, a couple of... I, really can't talk about some of the you know really cool stuff yet maybe coming soon i can talk about some of the forensic stuff that's going on in some court cases that i'm dealing with but uh but it's staying just really busy in the last uh, 30 days or so there's you know been a constant drive of uh of hard drives coming out and you know western digital and seagate are announcing uh all the, it really looks more like a battle of you know oh well, you announced your eight terabyte drive so i'm gonna announce my 10 terabyte drive but uh but you know they're really pushing their helium filled hard drives and so we're up to 10 terabytes now supposedly uh it's not available yet of course but uh but we have six and eights are supposedly hitting the shelf now and then you know pretty soon 10 uh i'm not gonna say they're reliable (laughs) right just just gonna say that's the that's the you know the premise at this moment is everybody's like oh we need the biggest hard drive available on planet earth um I, I can tell you what it's doing to us on the data recovery side because it's you know it's kind of starting to kill things from that standpoint when we're getting in um, RAID arrays that have three and four terabyte drives with a array of eight of them. Uh, you can imagine the amount of time that it takes for us to go through, uh, do all the processing, do all the imaging, actually reassemble the drives and the array itself, and then try to actually extract the data. Uh, you know, most of the time, our problem today is even even when we're successful and we get all that rebuilt and we've made it past whatever problems exist, how long will it take to extract the data? Oh my! So so as these drives keep getting bigger and bigger, it's it's still going to be it's going to be longer and longer to get that data back. Then, well, yeah. If you're, I mean, so we're looking at like you know one of the ones that we have in right now. We've got uh, we've got one that's three terabytes that are in an array of seven and we've got some that are four terabytes in an array of eight so you're looking upwards of you know 24 terabytes or more and you know part of the problem is is in our reassembly it doesn't matter if they're full or they're not full and there is reassembly process we've got to go through all of this the if we've got to image the bad ones we have to deal with whatever because that's traditionally what you're doing you're looking to see which ones are bad which ones can you hook up live so that you don't have to image every single drive because imaging all of those drives is going to take a week or two weeks by themselves. And then once you've actually done that and you've done the logical assembly, which is going to be in software primarily, so it's going to be slower than it's going to be on hardware uh, because you can't hook it back up to the original controller. The original controller will just start shuffling data around. This is a constant problem we have. And if anybody's listening who thinks that this is the way to go, I'm just going to try to say it so that people stop right now because one of the biggest problems we're having now is – an array goes down and some guy gets upset and he thinks he's going to lose his job or something else. So he does what he can to bring the array back up. And sometimes that means, uh, you know, he's forcing the drives online or he takes the drive out, puts it back in and lets the array figure out that, you know, it belonged to the array. And then what happens is the array starts to rebuild its structure across the entire drive. So it actually is taking data that is no longer in sync and then dispersing that with data that's in sync 
all the way across the array, thereby making all the data across the stripes on the array not in sync anymore at all, or the data that's there corrupt data to make them in sync while they're actually doing this process. And so we'll end up with the drives, we'll end up with an array that's like half and half. So in other words, let's say something happens, they figure out they can't boot, they can't talk to the drives, they can't do something, they finally stop. We'll get, oh, let's say a 20% rebuild. So the first 20% will be all this data that will be corrupt, which will be across the entire array. And then the last 20% will be what it used to be. So we actually have like two completely different RAID setups that are in there one with the corrupt data, one with the original data the way it existed, so that the guy could try to recover a file or get something back before he sends it in for a recovery. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, that's, again, it's people doing things that they're just dangerous enough to know enough to screw it up. Yeah, uh, it, it's really hard, you know, because this is a constant thing that happens even when they call in for tech support and things like that. You'll be on the other end of the phone with somebody like, you know, a tech at Dell or somebody like that. And he'll be like, okay, I'm following the script. Here you go. Click this button. Right. T- turn that drive on. No, I, I promise it'll be fine. And, of course, it never is. It's never fine. And so, you know, the most important thing to do, if there's a problem with the array, it, it just shut it off. I mean, I know it's really hard for people to say, oh, well, our accounting systems, you know, aren't running or whatever. But what you're actually going to do is destroy the possibility of the recovery on the back end, or you're only going to get a portion of the recovery because of the corruption that gets dispersed across it. There's nothing worse than taking one stripe of data on one drive that's out of sync and then telling all the other drives to rebuild parity across it and mix up all the data because it literally will be like a jigsaw puzzle. And there's there's no coming back from that portion. That portion of the rebuild is now just a jumble of data that makes no sense whatsoever because a drive got forced online or in some cases where a drive goes bad and there's bad sectors on the drive those will affect the parity on the array across the entire drive. And it, it, it's so hard to convince these people that they just need to turn it off. And, you know, I know it's going to take a week or whatever. We're going to have to do our job, but at least that's the difference between success and failure is the people who mess with it, the people who go these extra steps. I, even me on the phone, if I was talking to tech support or dealing with something, unless I had an image of the drives that they're telling me to do, I won't take those steps. So even if your job means, okay, we stop what we're doing, we go get this high-speed imager, and we image all the drives, and then we can put those back in. At least we have these logical images that can be reassembled in software. And they need to know to stop, and they're not stopping. Um, and a lot of people are worried about their jobs, I understand, you know, and the server's down, and you know, your accounting department is not going to work for a week. But it's better than complete loss. Oh, absolutely. And obviously – these people don't probably have backups um, that they can go back to. And, and I'm also wondering, too, in, in today's day and age, with, and I guess this is why I've always stayed with single drives and never have really messed with raids because I'm always more confident that I can get the data back on a single drive where the information is not spread across drives. Is there, what, is, what is the use case scenario and what's the benefit of using RAID today, if you know that there's a chance if something goes wrong, you could lose everything because you, you've, you know, that, that information is jumbled because let's face it, people are going to do what they do and they're first yeah. going to try to fix the problem. 
<laughs> well, and, and I'm not so upset by them trying to fix the problem because, I mean, I, I teach the do-it-yourself classes. I teach all sure. these things. But but there is a spot where you have to say – like, for instance, do-it-yourself in this case would have been, look, it's not safe for us to turn this array on or force that drive online. What would be safe is if we pull out our six drives and we image those six drives, then we can do whatever we want to these others, and I have – a safety net over gotcha. here, even if that's going to take 24 hours for you to do that job or 10 machines to make that happen so that they're all done quickly. That is the safe scenario. That's, that's the do it yourself. And at least then if you don't have the talent or the skill to do it yourself, that there is somebody who could be involved. If you had told me, Oh, I imaged every drive as soon as there was a failure and I didn't turn it back on, but now we put the original drives in and we screwed it all up. I'm going to start with your images. I'm not going to start with the new drive, the drives that are in the system. And that is your saving grace. And that would be the days that I, you know, I praise you for, for doing that. And, uh, that's that's your safest scenario, and it's always going to be better if you're sitting in front of the boss and look. Yeah, I know this array is – because trust me when I tell you, the day that your array is screwed up, there is little to no chance you're going to bring that that entire array back the way it is. It's all, okay. it, uh, it almost never happens, okay? Once, once, you act, once the array – like there's one thing to say. One drive went bad in the array, and I got a new drive, and I put it in, and it did a rebuild. That's the correct thing. That's when things work and the way they're supposed to work. When something doesn't look right – and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. That's the day you're not going to bring it back. I, I can almost promise you 99% of the time, unless you are like that one dude who's you know, the super skilled, I can make this happen. But then you know what you're doing, right? The, that, that guy knows what he's doing. The other guy's like guessing, hey, uh, is this going to work? Or you're on the phone with tech support, and that dude told you it was going to work. Well, he's got no skin in the game. It means nothing to him. This, this is these are always the, the arguments I hear. These are always what I hear on the other side, you know, on on support with uh, you know HP, Compact Dell, somebody, or uh, you know, dude came in, IT, you know, services were called in and they did this. Yeah, uh, you know, your safest bet is always, especially if you're trying to make those calls and it's taking time to do whatever. Shut it down, especially if they're you know if they're one terabyte or less, you can make images of these things in you know an an hour, hour and a half with uh, with you know high end equipment. That's the problem is most people aren't going to have this high end equipment. But if you have something like a Falcon or a, you know Deep Spar or something else that can actually make these images, you can do these images pretty quickly. Now, is, is there any type of software out there or anything that for the uh, you know I don't know layperson I guess that they could use besides some of these more yes, uh, robust you, things? So if you have, and you know, this is where time is important too, because let's say you pull out a drive from your array and you want to image that as fast as possible, but you don't have any other equipment, then hooking it up on a SATA cable to a motherboard or directly to, say, an eSATA external and opening something like FTK Imager, which is free software, it's, you know, from a standpoint, you can't really easily mess up the drive itself if you're using FTK Imager. It's not going to write anything to the drive. It's not like DD, where if you were to make a mistake that you're overwriting the disk instead of copying the disk. So at least okay. in this situation, you could easily use a free piece of Windows software. FTK Imager is an easy, free download. You go to accessdata.com, go to the support thing, you fill in your email address, and then you hit download, and you get it for free. And you can make a DD image of your hard drives and you can do them you know on multiple systems one at a time i suggest using something like eSATA so that it's fast enough to copy um if you have sas 
if you're using SAS arrays, you know, because this is that big gray area, I would say SAS arrays are the most robust of your arrays rather than doing SATA drive arrays or something along those lines. But, you know, the issue is, again, what did you purchase? How much did it cost? How much space do you have? Because it's a lot cheaper to get two terabyte drives in a SAS, uh, in, a, in a SATA array than it is in a SAS array. Right. Okay. Um, now, let me also talk about one other thing with SAS and SATA. Uh, so SAS drives, the controllers for SAS drives can read both SATA and SAS drives. They are compatible with both. However, SATA controllers are not compatible with SAS drives. So it's not just a cable or a converter. Uh, you have to have a controller that actually understands SAS. And since SATA was derived from the SCSI standards, and some of this is uh, a, a duplicate from that standpoint, the SAS controllers can control SATA drives. So what I would say in your arsenal of stuff to do is to go online and find a SAS controller, and you should buy one of these and keep it in your toolkit, just like you would have if you. So if you're an IT guy and you're listening to this, go on eBay or go on, you know, Amazon or something. Either buy used or a new one. You can get them from anywhere between, you know, forty bucks and one hundred and fifty bucks for some cheap ones. If you want some good controllers. And I would suggest a three-wear controller is my favorite. If you're going to do any of this, you know, try to stick with three-wear. Uh, okay. But but LSI bought, you know, and took over, and now there's all this other stuff. But at least if you have a SAS controller that's, uh, you know, a PCI, PCI Express, you can plug it in. You can image a drive on the fly. You'll have the connectors there. It'll be available. So I would say buy this card, you know, 100 bucks or less. Put it in your arsenal and keep it there for the day that you need it because the day that you need it you're not going to have time to go find one and you're not going to afford the ones that you're going to buy if they're going to be anywhere locally because they're going to be hiring controllers and they're going to be 300 plus or something along those lines and uh and the difference is usually whether or not there's an active controller whether or not you have a processor or you have just a, a host based controller host space is fine for the imaging process and if you have one of these you can hook up four sata drives and they will be faster on this controller then they're going to be through almost any other mechanism that you can image these drives. And you can talk to them natively, directly through the controller. So so whether it's SATA or SAS, that's the card that you want. Kind of like we used to have, you know, a Promise controller in our kit or a Mac Store controller in our kit. That's the way it used to be, you know, 10 years ago, IT guys would have, you know, secondary uh, controllers. It's not been a big thing in the last decade or so. But I do that for SAS, uh, SAS controllers. I keep those handy so that I can actually know plug them into a motherboard and then just bring up four drives or eight drives for whatever kind of controller that you want to buy and then you can image them you can image them using ftk you can image them if you know dd if you know whatever whatever platform you want to use as long as you make some sort of a raw image of the entire disk don't use things that are like uh you know like norton ghost uh that's probably not your best bet to use for those kind of things don't use a uh, true image as your backup software for that just use something that makes a DD image. There's also another free tool out there that's called Self-Image. Self-Image is a little one megabyte download, and it's basically DD in a Windows interface. And you can read and write and make images. You can do it both ways. Uh, the only danger with that, obviously, is if you haven't used Self-Image before, I don't want somebody to try it for the first time on a real disk and make a mistake. I would prefer 
they use something like FTK where there's almost no chance that you're going to make a mistake. You can just hit a button and say export image, name your image, and you're done. And you just export all this stuff to a big disk. Okay, so um, yeah, so the FTK uh, FTK Imager is is a, a free program, self image, and then the uh, w- number one, what is DD? Uh, so disk dump. So basically, Unix utilities. All of the stuff that we have for imaging drives is really uh, been around since the '60s, since '69 or so, when Unix uh, kind of derive these tools for making images of drives. You can actually treat a disk as a file, a file as a disk. Like, there's a number of different ways of imaging stuff, and it's the most versatile of the tools that are out there. But if you're looking at Linux, uh, you know, it's it's built into Linux. It's it's free. There are other tools that actually can deal with bad sectors and damaged sectors like DD Rescue. So if you're doing Linux, use something like DD Rescue. There are two versions of DD Rescue, one with an underscore and one without an underscore. Currently, right now, I would suggest you use the one that does not have the underscore. It's just DD Rescue. Uh, and then that way, you can physically do a dump of the drive to a file and make an image of it. And so that's where all the other software basically is derived from. It's all some variation using a sector copy tool that images them into a file. Now, now let me, let me, I'm going to mention one that I know a lot of people use, and I just want your opinion. Uh, something like an Acronis. Is that so? Acronis True Image is technically, and they will tell you if you actually ask them, say, oh, is this a forensics tool? Can I use this, you know, so that it copies every sector, does it in the right location? They will tell you no. In the past, I've had that answer directly from them. I don't know if they just don't want to get involved in court or whatever else, but your issue is unallocated sectors and it regenerating the drive with all of its geometry exactly the way the layout is supposed to be. Gotcha. And my and I've used True Image in the past, and it, you know, I've been successful, or I've had other people that have used it that I've had to use their results and been successful at what I needed to accomplish. But strictly speaking, I would say if you're in that realm, free and using a tool like FTK Imager, you just can't beat it from the, from that answer. I mean, it's just it's free. Like I don't think you need to pay or use True Image to gotcha. do this. Okay, so but I would say. I would say not for this purpose. If you want to use true image for other things, fine. But if you want to make an image of a drive, I would just say no. Let's let's stick to things that actually make a raw or a DD image. So it's it almost sounds like because I you know I use uh, a Cronus myself, true image. Um, if you have a working drive, it sounds like that's perfectly fine to use for the the services that that you need. But if you have a corrupted drive and you want to make an image of it and you need all the data from that drive in the, in the exact way that it is then you need to use something else outside of that. Yeah, uh, one of the problems is obviously, you know, if so when you're using a Cronus, it makes a, a TIB file, and the TIB files are, we have to convert them to something to use them, or we have to use a mounting tool that comes in the server editions to mount them so we can see them as virtual volumes or whatever. There's probably other tools that are out there, and I don't really want to get into, you know, email battle with people about what there is out there from that standpoint. Uh, from... From our tools in doing data recovery, doing RAID reassemblies and things like that, everything can see a raw image. So if you're doing DD and you're doing it as a raw image as opposed to a TIB file, all our tools can see that stuff. We don't have to do any conversions. There's compression that sometimes is done by those tools that are on the fly that are in the you know for a TIB format or something like that. That takes up more memory in the process of actually rebuilding a RAID array. Okay. And that's another thing. When we're talking about 
you know, four terabyte drives and arrayed, uh, you know, with eight drives in the array, we need all the memory we can handle. I mean, it, we, we need as much as we can to be able to process this stuff on the fly. And using it and the processor for compression algorithms like, you know, Encase as an example, which is a forensics tool. Encase makes e EO1s or, you know, there's a new version of Encase files as well. But they'll typically do compression, and when they do it on the fly, we've got to do it on the fly on the reverse side while we're trying to process all these sectors live. Uh, it just makes it a little – one more step, one more complication, gotcha. a little bit more work. Sometimes mounting tools or corrupt data doesn't work right. You'll seldom get through a corrupted disk with more than a couple of bad sectors with true image. True image and Ghost and several of the other tools typically won't do them. Uh, Ghost did have a dash on their – so Ghost has two versions. Ghost has the old DOS version, which is the true Ghost that existed, you know, long prior to Semantic acquiring uh, this product, where all products go to die. Uh, <laughs> so what they what they bought was they bought PowerQuest, and PowerQuest made a tool called Drive Image, and Drive Image was the tool that all they did was add the functionality to be able to read Ghost files, but it's the same product. It looks identical. Semantic slapped their name on the front of it. And basically, the tool was able to do live captures from a live machine, which you cannot do with Ghost. When you were using Ghost, it was a DOS-based platform so that you could image this disk. And you could, you know, they had tools like Sid Walker so that you could, <clears throat> you could change the SIDs of your systems as you were deploying multiple systems if you were going to use it for corporate imaging and things like that out in the field. So, so it had a whole other purpose. And then when they came, you know they bought Drive Image, they made this GUI front end, uh, the, you know, and they called it Ghost. And basically, it already existed as a whole other product out there, and used something called the V2I platform. And the V2I platform is the snapshotting processes. Uh, since 2000, Windows has had the ability to do snapshotting so that tape drives and things could do backups of live files by freezing their state and then taking, uh, you know, the snapshot and then using the snapshot. For backup, and that's really what PowerQuest had. They had a tool that would allow you to do that on the server and on a Windows platform, and that's what Drive Image was doing, and consequently now called Ghost. Okay, so now FTK Imager. Now, if if I make an image of a drive, can just reg in regular Windows, can I look at that image, or is there anything that, I, from my standpoint, that I could do with that image, or is that that image just for going to be for guys like you that actually? you know, rebuild these arrays and, and do different well, things with them. So you can you can look at the image. The issue is this, like, so for instance, you have an array, let's just say a small array. Let's say you have uh, th three 500 gig drives in a RAID 5 array and something goes wrong and you want to make sure that everything is safe or your Drobo, for instance, because Drobo will change stuff. So make an image of these drives ahead of time so that at least you have this content in its original layout. <clears throat> so let's say, Emergency happens. You say, oh, my God, uh, before I mess with any of these drives, let's make an actual image. You're not imaging them together as a full thing. Like, uh, So if it's running and it's still up and running and you can do that, great. But if it's not working and something bad happened, rather than playing with the settings and trying to get the stuff running again so that the volume comes up, treat them as individual drives. Just say, screw this. I'm going to make images of them because Scott told me. Let's make images. Pull every drive out. 
one at a time, label them in order. It starts at zero. So zero is your first drive. So, and you must know, like some people don't know, like it's not always clear when you're pulling drives out of a RAID array, which one is zero and which one is one. Like sometimes, you know, the bays, it's hard to tell. Sometimes the card, the connectors might be reversed and you might not know it. But if you take a picture of it and you say, okay, I started with the left drive and the left drive is the first drive or the top drive and the top drive is the first drive, at least whatever you label it as, I can figure it out on the back end if something happens or somebody else can tell you uh, in the end what happens. So you, you say, okay, zero is the top drive and I'm labeling it as zero. You put it in your system, you use FTK Imager, you write the image out. Now it will do the beginning, like you'll start at the top of the drive and you'll say export image you'll say the entire drive and it will do a copy of the entire one terabyte. And when it's done, there will be this raw DD image on your drive that you have stored. You know, obviously disk space is a problem because you need to like write this to a four terabyte or something so you can store three images or whatever right, it is right. that you have. Okay. Uh, so you're going to store these images and then from those images you can, and I, and I did a two hour speech at DEF CON uh, several years ago on how to recover porn from your RAID array. And so that was, you know, you got to make things interesting for, for DEF CON. So, so I did a, a presentation on stage where I recovered porn from a RAID array. You know, that's a pretty common thing at home. I guess people might want to recover. And so, uh, so I actually live rebuilt an array on the screen. Now, I didn't have enough time to image them, so I started with the images and assumed that at this point we had already made images and we've done it. So in, you know, 40 minutes, I rebuilt an array and showed you how to actually recover the data. I actually had a failure on stage that I had to recover from, actually, so it was pretty funny. So if you go back oh, and look, wow. you know, on YouTube, those videos are all up on YouTube. If you go to My Hard Drive Died and you go to Presentation Page, it links to all my YouTube videos. And there's a there's a video out there, and like I said, it's called How to Recover Porn from Your Raider Ray. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and, and apparently, because there's other people who have made speeches based on my speech and then, you know, giving me thanks for, you know, bringing this up and showing how to do it and do whatever, because I do them graphically. I do a reassembly graphic. There's, there's probably 50 ways to do a reassembly of a RAID array. A lot of them, you're going to sit there and you're going to look at content and hex. Okay. And, and I do that. I, I do. It's a common daily event as I'm looking at stuff in hex, but trying to teach somebody how to do that in hex. Uh, they, they can't see it. Yeah. Well, you know, if you don't have any experience, if you're not a programmer, you haven't really spent any time dealing with uh, hex editors and trying to understand the layout of data, it, it's it's a really difficult thing to do. So when I was writing my class that I teach this stuff in, I had to come up with a way that was unique, that could be taught, and that we could actually teach in a couple of hours a chance of reassembling this RAID array and getting it done. And back when I started doing this, there wasn't any automation. I started writing this stuff in 2006, 2005. There was very little automation in RAID reassembly. There's a lot of software out there that will do it now. There's a, there's a tool that's called Reclaim Me. It's a free, if you go to free RAID recovery, uh, I think it's freeraidrecovery.com, called Reclaim Me, that for free, it will tell you the layout of an array. So you could take these three disks that you just imaged, as I described. You could load all three images directly into the software, and you could hit a button, and you could say go. And there's a chance that you're going to get it. There's a pretty good chance. If you have a good array, and you've imaged them in the beginning before you screwed anything else up, there's a good chance the software will figure it out and get it done for you. Now, 
they do it for free, and it's one of the only pieces of software that will actually tell you the layout of all the content for free. So most of the other tools that you'll download after you run through this 20-hour process, because it may take 20 hours for it to figure it out, most of them will pop up a box and say, we figured it out. We're sure we know what it is. If you pay us, you know, $2,000 for this piece of software, whatever it is, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever that people tell you, that, you know, we'll tell you the layout of the drive and we'll tell you how you can recover it. And that's what most of the other tools I've seen out there do, but not this one. This one, the free raid recovery guys, you know, I appreciate it. Thank you. I don't know the guys. Uh, I've never talked to them. I think it's awesome. I'm very impressed with what they've done and how they've helped people out there. Uh, It will actually give you, in a text format, they'll do a box that will say, we have looked at all the stuff. We know your parity. We know what the exclusive or routines are. We have matched it up. Here is your solution. And it'll tell you first in a text file what the order of the drives is, the block size of the drives, and how to actually reassemble it. Then it will tell you across the top, it'll have tabs, and it'll say, which pieces of software do you own? And there will be like six products out there that they wrote the file that tells you every click. They'll tell you, open the program, click this button, open this drive, open this file. you know, And it'll tell you step-by-step step how to reassemble the data and recover it if you have these six other programs, which have nothing to do with them. They didn't write these six other programs. They don't care if you own them. They don't, you know, they don't have no skin in the game on that one. But they did write their own program. And so one of the other solutions is, if you don't want to buy any of these other programs, you can click this one button, and it will load it into our software. And our software can do this recovery for you. Our software is $200. Um, I will also tell you, in my experience, uh, their software looks a little hokey, a little cheesy on the back end. But it is amazing. It okay. has actually done things that, like, for instance, uh, if you're doing Linux, uh, you know, LVMs, if you're doing anything that's unusual, it's been able to actually at least get maybe not every time 100%. Like sometimes I've had to use the information it provided to me to go load it into a Linux machine and actually look this thing up and see. But I've tested it pretty thoroughly um, and understand for like five or six years I had to do all this stuff manually. So I know how to do every process manually. But I'm very impressed. And I think that any of you users out there that are attempting to do this, you should go sit down and try it. And and if you're really interested in doing this process, what you should do, just go get a cheap RAID card, throw three drives on it, format it, throw some software on it, take them apart, image them, and then go load it into the software and see what your result is. And you can learn how to do this process in advance of a future crash. And you're going to be the one guy one day, somebody's going to call and say, do you know how to do this? And you're going to be like, yeah, I, I've practiced this every day. I'm ready. You know, I'm a gunslinger. That's good, and yeah. You'll, you'll make a living doing it. Right. I, I make good money doing raid arrays. Um, now, I will tell you, I have. it's not a fast process. Uh, most of the time, I've got to do it manually because the client's waiting on me. So I've got to manually reassemble this content, and I know enough about raid arrays. I teach it in the class, and I have this graphical process for reassembling the drives very, very quickly. You can tell if something's wrong within a minute or so of finishing the imaging of a drive. I can tell, I can almost reassemble almost any array that's not completely corrupt in 45 minutes or less. Most of the time it's 10 minutes. Um, and this is fine for, you. I mean, you can do the same thing with RAID 0, RAID 
RAID 1, which you should never be seeing anyway, RAID 5, <laughs> and RAID 6. So so you can be covered for any of those things. Okay. No, that's that's great. So I just want to ask a question that uh, I'm thinking about. The FK, FTK imager, now if I, if I took an image, let's say I took an image of I had three drives in a RAID array. I took an image of those three drives. If one of those uh, drives failed, could I replace it with an image drive and have it if, back up and running or no? Okay, so uh, my suggestion is never to image the drives and then restore the images onto a drive and put them into the array. Okay. Uh, because the controllers know things like a lot of them will know serial numbers or they'll know an identity of the drive. Like there's content that exists and sometimes it not matching can cause a problem in the array itself. Gotcha. And so, so I would make the images – you could still, at that point, as long as you're sure that you've made the images correctly and that you're safe, that's the other hard part, right? Knowing that you've actually right. made the images correctly <laughs> and that you're safe before you put them back in the array. Okay. Uh, the original drives back in the array, but your arrays will normally know, especially any of the higher-end ones are going to know those drives and what they exist as. Now, understand, one drive fails. If you're in a RAID 5 or a RAID 6, I can have one drive fail and a RAID 6 with two drives fail. I can actually substitute in the images uh, that I've made missing disks. So I can have a blank disk or a non-existing disk, and I can actually virtually reassemble it in software like RStudio, as an example. RStudio is a, is a great tool out there where I can mess around with the layout and the disks and do some testing. And uh, and I teach a, a major portion of my class on how to do this manually because RStudio doesn't really do anything for you automatically. You have to, But it, it has all the manual processes. And if you have a huge RAID array, you know, if you have something in excess of 14 drives, you can do it in RStudio, which some other tools you can't do more than 14 or 16 drives in, in most of the other tools. There's limitations as to the positions and the holders that they have. Whereas our studio, I haven't found the limitation yet. Um, so, so I'll you know I teach those kind of processes. And one other thing to note too, since you brought this up, you can look at the images in FTK Imager. So FTK Imager, you can open up an image file, and it will it knows you know the top three major files, four major file systems: uh, XFAT, FAT, NTFS. Linux, uh, EXT file systems, and Mac OS. It'll know those things, and it'll show you the content for those things. But if you're in a RAID array, they're not complete without the rest of the drives. So what has to happen is you take your drives, let's say these three drives that we were talking about, and let's say I load them into uh, uh, RStudio, as an example. I can tell it the layout and then virtually make a disk. And it combines all three of those and will automatically take those slices and do them virtually. And when I'm looking at it in the tool, every time it goes to those sectors, it will know what sector that drive is on, and it will virtually reassemble all of those slices. Then I have an option. I can try to export the logical data, or I can export the image file. If I export the image file as one solid image file, then FTK Imager would be able to see that as a regular file system, it would think it's one huge drive. Okay. No, that makes perfect sense. That, yeah. You know, I've always wondered when you're looking at different file systems, so you could actually, once you make that image, you can look at the different file systems, no problem. Now, what is, so in today's day and age, when everything is so fast, or what I would consider fast anyways, what is the purpose of RAID? Uh, what you know? What what are people using it for, so, and why why do we do that? 
So, and, and you had said a few minutes ago, and I, I had wanted to address that, and so this is good that you followed up with it because I forgot you had said it, but <laughs> it was that you know you felt mostly comfortable having single drives instead of a RAID array. I do not feel comfortable having single drives. I would only have a RAID array if that was my choice. Like, you know, it's very difficult to implement in a laptop and things like that because sure. I don't trust RAID 0. RAID 0 is not RAID. It's not redundant in any way. It just takes two slices and slices it up over two drives and when a drive dies, you lose it all unless we can rebuild and recover the drives. And I do RAID 0 every day. Like people send in, you know, laptops like Alienware laptops and stuff like that where we've got to do recoveries. Um for you know a, a number of high-end corporations and things like that, but RAID five in a laptop is right now virtually unheard of. You need at least three drives for it to to have a RAID array in a laptop, and that's probably not the most efficient thing. But from everything else, from a workstation or a server perspective, um, you have redundancy. If one drive dies, then it it no longer exists in reality. So in other words, uh, think of it like this formula: A plus B equals C. So, and the reason I use this formula is just basically because everybody who is an executive at a company can understand if you tell them this, A plus B equals C. If I take any of those letters away, tell me what the answer is. And as long as you know what the other numbers are in those other positions, you can always figure out what the answer is. And that's not quite exactly what happens on a RAID array. On a RAID array, it does an exclusive OR procedure. Most RAID arrays do exclusive OR. There's other variations. But what happens is it does uh, slice A. Let's say you say a 64K slice. And most people might not get what I'm saying here at this point, but you have different slice sizes you can choose. Instead of being one sector, it can be 15 sectors. It can be 30 sectors. It can be whatever you choose if the device and the controller allows you to do this. So normally you're looking at you know 8K, 16K, 32K, 64K. 64 is most of the time the default for okay. slice sizes. Uh, they can go higher. They can go up to 2 megs or so, depending on your controller. Um, if you have a LACI drive and you want to rebuild a LACI drive after it crashes, you might be looking at 128K slices or 256K slices. I've had them all the way up to 512K slices. The, but the norm, let's, let's just say 64K. And if, uh, if you have three hard drives, which is the minimum requirement for RAID 5, you have a 64K slice from drive one, 64K slice from drive two, and a 64K slice that gets written to drive three for its parity. So it'll be A, exclusive ORD with the B equals the parity written to C. Okay. All right. So I know this is really complicated to describe in a podcast, but ultimately what happens is if all of your drives exist, Slice A and slice B from drive one and drive two, those two make up your data. And combined, the mathematical equation exclusive or will give you a result which equals C. If one of those is missing, if I take B and I make B gone, then you can reverse the mathematical equation using A and C to equal what B used to be. Without losing, so that's without losing anything. So if one drive dies, you're still back up and running with the existing system the way it's set up. Yes. Okay. Although the difference in my mind is when all the drives exist, your real data exists. So in other words, A and B are always your real data. It's not going to look at C to try to figure out what your data is. It's going to use A and B, and it's going to write the content to C. Okay. If your drive dies, 
Now it's got to do a mathematical equation on the fly. So it's it's like sitting there and asking somebody math questions all day long to get your answer. And that's what your controller's doing. Your controller's having to do the math to rebuild this on the fly. And this usually has an impact. So usually you can tell there's a decline in speed. And it depends on your controller. Some controllers have a processor. And sometimes you're using the host of the computer's processor with a driver. And so your CPU is going to be impacted or the CPU on the board is going to be impacted. And so there is a speed difference. But, you know, initially I'm thinking, okay, all drives are alive, so I have my real data. I don't need to worry about parity. If, if a drive dies, then I've got to have parity in order to rebuild the other drives. And so if that one drive dies, essentially with, with the RAID 5, which we're talking about, you can take another drive and replace that drive, and it will rebuild it the way it was, A, B, and C again? Yes. Uh, now, I want to also point out, A, B, and C for 64K, that's the layout for the first slice. The second slice would then rotate, and so B would be where the parity is. So your A and C are your real data, and on that second slice, B is the parity. And then on the third slice, A is the parity, and it would normally do it in that. And there's different RAID configurations. There's uh, there's five different ones under a Linux configuration, and then there's other higher-end ones when you actually get up into like HP Compaq, delayed parity, and things like that. So there's other RAID configurations, but I'm just giving you a quick description of how it would normally work in the majority of RAID 5 arrays. So that parity is – it's not a parity drive. So one drive is not parity. The parity is distributed in slices across the drive. So at any point in time, if you took one of those drives out, you can see the combination of them. So on a couple of drives, or on a couple of slices, you'll actually have your real data, your A and your C, and B will be parity. And then on the other slices, it's going to have to do parity to actually calculate what data was there on the drive that's dead. So there's a rot rotation here, if you can put it that way, uh, of where the parity is and how it has to calculate it and do it live. Okay, so now we we know that we know that RAID is not a backup per se, but it is a, right. it is a redundancy. Okay, right. so and this is a huge problem too. What you just said is a huge problem at a lot of companies I've seen. This is why they don't have backups. Somehow somebody's been convinced we don't need a tape drive or we don't need a hard drive to back up to that we have RAID. It's redundant. Right. Yeah. Well, if you get a virus. If something happens to the file, if you close your accounting books and you have to reopen your accounting books, you can't go back to your backup. I mean, you still need a backup. This doesn't replace the backup. What this does is it just like, you know, before we started this podcast, we talked briefly about reinstalling operating systems. This stops you from reinstalling. Right. Like this keeps your system running. When you put the other drive in, that other drive will sync all that data. Then you'll have, you know, 24 hours later, you'll have a full running system again with this protection so that your system's not going to go down and you can still use it and you're still intact without having to reinstall everything and start all over again. If you have a tape backup and, and everything bad happens and you don't have uh, this redundancy at all, basically you got to reinstall your operating system to get your tape backup running so that you can actually restore it. I know there's boot disks and things too, but somehow you've got to have an OS running in order to do the restore. Right. Um, because, you know, in my case, what we were talking about, I just redid my system. And basically what I've done is I've, I've, my, my backups are I have a two terabyte drive that's in my system that backs up my data drive. And it also backs up my operating system drive. And then I have an external drive that backs up the same thing. 
And then I have another drive that I've cloned my operating system drive, and I do that on a weekly basis. So I basically can swap the drive in and out. And then I've yep. got my online backup. <laughs> and, and that's and that's good. So you know, it's a you know, I like the paranoid approach better <laughs> than than I mean, I think it's far better to do that. Uh, you know, because there there are and because sometimes I talk to companies and they're for some reason everybody seems to think tape is dead. That tape is not the best way. To, like, I'm here to say, and I, I know there'll be some people who argue with me, tape is the best possible alternative for backup that you have because it's a non-changing medium. It's a cheap medium. It's easy to transport. It's easy to rebuild a system from just the tape. Some people are going to argue, well, you can do that with a hard drive. And trust me, I'm the hard drive guy. I mean, right. I, if I could say every time I could use a hard drive to do this, that would be my preferred method, I would agree with you. But I don't agree with you because I've seen too many catastrophes. In in the 20 years that I owned a managed IT company, I had 14 employees. We did all this other stuff with regards to servicing uh, servers, equipment, workstations. There's so many things that can mess up with somebody using a hard drive as their backup medium. Um, for instance, one of the things, like in a standard backup scheme, a grandfather scheme is the, is the most popular. That would require you to have at least 21 tapes. So you would do this looping process and you actually would have over a period of time the safest possible alternative or and I'm sure there's newer methods and other people have other ideas but that's like one of the generally accepted basic safest methods is this grandfather scheme which will give you a certain period of time with which you'll actually be able to go back to your backups. A lot of times when people are doing drives they're buying two or maybe three and they're rotating those through, turn off the drive, pull the drive out, put a new drive in. Tomorrow that backup will work. And sometimes something happens. Whatever happens, it's you know three weeks ago and they need to go back to and you don't have that option. It's overwritten every day or it's resyncing stuff every day. There are great alternatives so that you can archive these files and do things. So if somebody's going to use a backup routine, I would suggest something like uh, VersaPro or ver uh, vice versa is a tool. Uh, vice versa pro you can actually tell it archive all the other stuff and make you know six weeks backups uh in the process of doing this <clears throat> but my real problem with hard drives is them being online so for instance let's say crypto locker comes in and you get a virus that encrypts all your data well if it's your backup drive is online it's encrypting that or you get a virus right. that makes its way to the backup drive these are live devices that the second you plug them in you're receiving this virus or doing something. Whereas if it's on a tape, uh, you may contain it on the tape. It's unlikely it's erasing the tape or it's infecting your computer when you put the tape in itself. You have some stability there, at least from a standpoint of using a tape or a tape drive. Your problem with tape is size. <clears throat> you can't always do your 24 terabyte server with a tape drive or a tape drive that's affordable. Um, what I suggest is people bake, break things up into their business practices and they define their data based on this. Like all your spreadsheets and all your Word documents are really small. It doesn't matter how big your company is. The quantity that that size of that data is, is probably very small by comparison to uh, 80 gigs of movies or something else that's hanging out out there on another disk that is that may be reproducible in other methods. So you actually have data that doesn't change very often. And so I stagger data <clears throat> And sometimes even stagger partitions based on that data. Um, there's a whole nother partitioning thing that I could get into, but about <laughs> speed. Like, like uh, just as a quick example, so that 
people hear what I'm saying, but when you're installing your server, a lot of times what will happen is a server, they will install the OS. That'll be the first partition. The second partition may be uh, the installation programs or something they're going to use. The third one may be the user area. Then the fourth one becomes the Exchange Server Database or the SQL Server Database. And I'm going to explain just real quick, no matter how you look at it, the second partition is slower than the first partition. The first partition always begins on the lowest LBA blocks that exist. Your second partition is on the next set of LBA blocks higher into the disk. So by the time you get to your fourth partition, even if it's on a RAID array, you have now put your exchange database, the one that's going to be the most likely to be talked to constantly, in the slowest part of your drive. Wow. I, you know what? I never realized. Now that you said it, it makes perfect sense, but I would have never looked at it like that. When when you look at a physical disk, and, and that's one of the things that every time I see a disk, the very first thing that I look at is the outside edge, because it's basically the opposite when you're working from a CD-ROM. Uh, the outside edge of the disk is the fastest location on the disk because it can store more sectors without the head having to move. And they defined it that way. Uh, so your lowest LBA blocks are on the outside edges of the disk. So the closer to the center of the disk, the higher the LBA numbers are as you go into the disk. So when you do a RAID array, you're doing the same thing. You're just doing it across multiple drives. So you're making the first partition will be the, you know, the first 20 tracks of all eight of those drives all the way across, which will be the lowest LBA numbers. Now, there is some control that the controller has over where these LBA blocks are. But fundamentally, uh, because it can it can it can. It doesn't change the drive. Let me restate that. It doesn't change the LBA blocks of the drive. It can virtually remap things on the controller so it can decide where the fastest things are. But, okay. uh, but just understand, you know, those are those are some of the some of the avenues when you're actually trying to define a server. You should you you can still make your OS the last partition on the disk. It doesn't have to be the first partition. So there's still processes that are involved there with which ones you're going to define uh, based on files that are being used. So I treat things based upon, you know, is this static? Is this a database? Is this something I'm not changing often? Here's my, you know, operating, uh, you know, my accounting files or something like that. And I will isolate those and do backups separately based on this staggered data. If you are doing them to external hard drives, I suggest that you also have one that you turn off, like so that you have one who's completely offline, at some point in time, so every 24 hours, this one turns off, um, or put it on a timer where the plug is actually turned off on an external drive, as long as it's like your third or your fourth backup. <clears throat> right. You know, use your use your first primary two or three backups as, uh, and so anybody who's doing IT work and you want to save your job, this is how you save it. You make sure that your first primary ones are your best alternatives. So you have your RAID, you have your tape drive, you have uh, an online source for backup that doesn't get turned off. You have your third one as one that actually gets turned off so that on a periodic, every 24-hour day, one turns on, one turns off, and then you have additional backup. And then, you know, cloud services are a different, you know, fiasco right there from a security standpoint. Sure. <laughs> You know, we're all in danger of this all the time. But, you know, if you're if you're able to do something, you know, I would have said true crypt. 
But we're in a whole nother fiasco with TrueCrypt, and who knows what's the safest uh, encryption method these days? Because there's certainly a reason why TrueCrypt has decided to do what they did. But uh, but if you could make a container that was encrypted that you could put accounting files in with approval, obviously, and then store those in say an Amazon service or something else that might be safe. There's nothing safe. Um, right. But exactly. At, but at least if it's an <laughs> encrypted platform, you have less likely. A chance that something's going to happen, but it, it mounts, decrypts it, put your stuff in it, then encrypt it, send it up to the cloud. I don't know. I, uh, I, I figure everything that I do online is is seeable by somebody. Yeah, this is the way I. I mean, well, there's it, there's no way to get around that. I don't think. If you make the container locally and then it's encrypted, so if you had, let's say, you did make a TrueCrypt partition, you uh, and you have that partition uploaded on a periodic basis for. The main reason I bring this up is you want to get things out of your segment of the country. So when you're thinking of disaster, when I design disaster-proof recovery ideas, I think of locale. So if you're in New York, maybe you want your other backup to be in uh, Florida, or maybe you want your Florida backup to be in California. You know, And I'm thinking in those terms. And so I'll look at where I can actually move this encrypted data that it would be the safest, even if that means we have to go there, rent a small office, set up a server, and distribute the data there so that it's safe. But you you know, you do have to take into account what happens, you know, if if a hurricane hits Florida and your business is strictly in Florida and your backup is off site, but it's you know in Daytona and one's in Miami, is that a solution? I, I'm not sure that's a solution. Right. It, you know, and I want to go back to uh, what we were talking about with RAID arrays, because I know you, you've you got a, um, you said you don't really like the RAID 5 array. No, no. A RAID 5 array is the bare minimum uh, that I would accept. I, okay. I, I would prefer RAID 6, but it used to be, I would say, RAID 5 is the way to go. But problems, let, let me describe the problem with RAID 5. Okay. Uh, today, RAID 5, the process is great. The drives are crap. The drives today are the worst <laughs> drives ever made in, on planet Earth. There's nothing reliable about, any, reliable about any of these drives. And to think that any of these drives that you can buy today are going to make it, even a couple of years, most of the time, is a, it, it, it's like a unicorn. Okay, so it's not going to happen. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. It's complete <laughs> malarkey, and I don't give a crap what the piece of paper says that came with it about, you know, the but the lifespan, the trend, any of it. It's all BS. And worse, when you're talking SSDs, I keep seeing people talking about SSDs like they are, you know, magic, and that they're going to live forever. And let me tell you what, SSDs are are the bane of our existence right now because. The marketing stuff tells you one thing, but their true lifespan is complete and utter BS. They are not going to live. They are your worst enemy. And putting those in a RAID array is is the worst thing you could possibly do. I hear it every day. Oh, they're so fast. Let's do this. Let's put them in a RAID array. So let's say you buy three SSDs and you put them in a RAID array. It doesn't matter whether they're Enterprise Edition or low-end. It doesn't matter. Everybody's using the same basic uh, uh, NAND technology anyway right. so so fundamentally it doesn't matter how much different from a speed standpoint they are the the, the technology behind it is very similar so uh, you put three of these drives in a RAID array they all have the same lifespan so if you write to it it's writing across all the drives at the same time so if it can do one million writes which they can't if you can do one million <laughs> writes uh, they're SLCs you could do one million writes okay uh, in theory uh, 
then they will be all writing at the same time the same amount. Then the stuff will get shuffled around the same number of times, the number of times that you write. So when one dies, the next one's going really soon. It's going to have a very similar lifespan. And if it fails because of a firmware bug, which is a huge amount of these SSD problems, they're all using like the same three vendors are producing the code for almost every one of these drives. So when you're looking at controllers and bugs and firmware, they're all the same. And so, I, I mean, I've literally taken off the covers of some of these drives, and they're the exact same drive from one brand to another brand. They're literally the same drive. Wow, okay. So uh, what I'm telling you is all they're doing is changing some little minor firmware things. If they have the same bugs, they're going to die at the same time. You write one million times to this one, and it has, hits a firmware bug. It's going to hit the firmware bug of the next one and the one after that. So all of your RAID arrays will go. So we've actually done the opposite of what RAID was intended to do because you know they're all going to die at the same time. Whereas in hard drives, it's because they're spending this, they're, they're, you can't – even though they're unreliable, they're going to be more reliable than that. And they're probably not going to hit the same firmware bugs at the same exact time. And they're probably not going to have the exact same lifespan. Some are going to live a little longer than the others. So when you put in another drive for it to resync, you've got a better chance of it surviving. But my personal opinion now is that, especially on spending disks, if you're doing this, do RAID 6. So you can have two drives die instead of one so that you don't run into this problem where, say, it is a firmware bug and the same amount of time that they're online that they die. So that way you have a better chance if you have RAID 6 because RAID 6 allows you to have two drives to die, so you need a minimum of four, and then you would still maintain all of your data. Oh, so it's basically adding a uh, an extra disk in there for redundancy so that you can have two of them go and then you're still up and running. Yes, but make sure – you know I just want to make sure when you say that statement, it's not the disk that's the redundancy. It's the space that is distributed across all of them. So because, like I said, remember slice A – a, B, and C. C is the parity in the first one. Then B is the parity in the next one. And A is the parity in the other one. So they're not actually the drives themselves. But when the drives go, the remainder of the mathematical equation still remains. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay. So, so you're right. You're right in the way you stated it. I just want to make sure because so many people say parity drive that it's a parity drive and that drive can go and the the parity's on that drive, so it's fine. Like, no, it's not that. That's it's it's a physical thing that exists across all of the drives. And so this mathematical calculation would exist for all of this data, but two of them can go. So what happens in a lot of cases is in a RAID 5 array where you have three drives, one dies, you pull out that drive, you put the new drive in, it starts to do a rebuild. But tomorrow, it's going to take 24 hours for it to do this rebuild. By tomorrow, one of the other drives dies. Like if it's a power problem or something like that, that sometimes causes a problem for one, it causes the problem for the other. Right. So at least with RAID six, I got one more chance. Okay. It, it just yeah, it builds in that extra seatbelt to uh, kind of protect you just in case. Yes. All right. So, so now when you're doing RAID arrays, do you suggest? You know, I mean, obviously, if you're going to do a RAID array, you're probably going to go and buy from the same lot of yeah. of drives. Does it really matter, or would you would you suggest mixing drives up? You know, brands and and things like that. Well. Um, I don't necessarily suggest mixing brands. You have a difference in speed and cash and a number of other things. Uh, you're right about the lot. It's possible that an entire lot has the same problem. But I'll tell you in my experience because, I mean, I can't even tell you how many thousands of raid arrays I've seen at this point. But uh, 
There is an occasional problem where the entire lot causes a problem with the entire array or has the same physical problems and and exhibits you know a certain number of sectors that are bad across all of the drives that that does happen um, but I would say it's rare it's rare on a spinning disk it's far more likely to happen on SSDs but on spinning disks um, you know the number of times that that's truly happened I could probably say you know I can probably count with you know ten fingers uh, okay. so so I would say you're 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 still most of the time pretty safe, but I have seen obviously you know firmware problems that affect the entire line of drives. So for instance, Seagate drives or something when they had their firmware bug that they may all live the same amount of time before they're turned off. Uh, I'm not really sure swapping lots would have solved that problem because it was like eight months later by the time they figured. Okay. It out. So so you could be in a completely different lot. If you really want the safest scenario so far by far, I'm going to say SAS. SAS period. Um, of all the problems that exist in the world, SAS is your best choice. It is your most stable arrays. I would not even consider for uh, for my business stuff to be on anything but a SAS array. Okay. And that's obviously, yeah, you're talking about arrays because I'm looking at the, you know, I, I look at my drives almost, um, you know, they're individual drives, but I look at them as throwaways <laughs> almost. And that's why I've, you know, my operating system drive is separate now and I've cloned it. I have an SSD. I cloned it to a spinning drive so that if it, it goes down, I can just basically swap the drives out and go get another SSD if I want or whatever and go from there. But I generally, as a rule, I probably over the last five years, I probably don't even keep a spinning drive. I might keep a spinning drive a year. <laughs> yeah. And I usually get a little itchy and I just, they're so cheap, I just go buy another one and replace yeah. it. And, and, and for you, I can understand that. And for dealing with, you know, the video and the content or the audio and things like that and editing it and, you know, then once it's up in the net, you're done with certain pieces of it or even your own personal stuff. I can understand, you know, how a portion of that is replaceable. But, you know, in business, I'll just tell you, for for example, let's say a large corporate company has a Oracle database, their system goes down and the Oracle database eats it and they can't recover from it. Uh, like 92% of these businesses that have a huge failure like this don't come back from it. Like they, some of them go out of business. Some of them never regain customer confidence again. You know, it, they go out of business. Right. So, so, you know, when you're looking at something like that, that's huge. And I'll tell you one other thing that's become a huge pain in my neck that happens a lot right now. I know everybody is excited about using, you know, Hyper-V and virtual machines and all this other stuff. And, but they're not doing their backups properly. They're not focusing on the disk itself or the content that's in the VM. And what we have is uh, a set of drives that will be a RAID array that on this RAID array will have a huge VM sitting in it. And so the virtual machine, the entire image for this virtual machine will be sitting in that. And then inside of that virtual machine, there's SQL databases and Exchange Server and all these other things running. Well, when that dies and we have to do a recovery, even small amounts of damage will make it almost impossible to ever do a complete recovery of the full VM because you will have sections that will be missing or you'll have sectors that will be missing from the VM that will stop it from starting or cause corruption or cause some other problems. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's two ways of looking at the recovery of this. Are you backing up the content inside the VM or are you backing up the VM itself? Because your system's not going to run again. It's a lot of work and a lot of cost to set up these uh, systems to run virtual machine servers. And 
it's you know really somebody really needs to think about this there needs to be more people at the company who talk about the disaster recovery processes and what they should really be doing from the disk standpoint as opposed from what's happening inside the virtual machine so what's the proper way to back something like that up because i'm well, not even familiar with you know well, my my personal opinion is i mean there's again this is where point paranoia really counts, right? Um, so you're inside the virtual machine and the virtual machine's running and you have some things that you're running inside that virtual machine that are critical, most of the time SQL databases. So you have one process that could involve the backup of the SQL database from inside the virtual machine. Then you have the outside process which backs up the virtual machine itself. And so my personal opinion is when I'm looking at these situations from a disaster recovery standpoint, I, I have the virtual machine image that I can look at. I have the content inside the virtual machine image, and I actually have the entire system that's running Hyper-V or something else so that at least at that point, I can actually look at, am I going to back up this whole system? How much time are we talking from a downtime standpoint uh, to rebuild the server and get that back and running? Or is it just a SQL Server database that's the important factor and that we can migrate that around? Um, so I'm actually looking at it from those three points. I'm looking at it from three points of attack, which is the physical disk, the virtual machine, and then the internal data inside of the virtual machine. And so I try to come up with a scheme that we can actually do that process to be the safest as possible um, and have the, little, the smallest amount of downtime. Because most of the time, these are corporate structures that the virtual machine um, is necessary for their continual business. I mean, you can't say, oh, Amazon, let's be down uh, right. for, for six hours <laughs> <clears throat> or, you know, and it's way more than six hours. I mean, there's, there's literally no way I can even easily describe to you when you have a server like this with, you know, 32, uh, you know, four terabyte drives in it and you're dealing with the sand uh, of that size, it, you're, you're looking at like 14 days of rebuild time. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, that's, there's, that's there's no time. chance we're going to meet, uh, you know, something that's going to be back up tomorrow. That's that's literally not plausible. And you can't you can't treat it any other way. The image of these disks and the content inside this disk will never be recoverable if you try to do anything fast. If you think you can do something fast, that is when you're going to lose it all. Guarantee gotcha. it. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So what a lot of these companies are, uh, what you've seen anyways, is a lot of these companies are just basically backing up the disk and they're not dealing with the virtual images in the SQL databases? Uh, you know, the amazing thing is very few of them are actually backing up any of this content correctly at all. Like none of them are even doing the backup of the virtual machine. None of them are thinking outside the box of the box itself. <clears throat> so, no. Uh, wow. Right, right now the disasters are, are one right after the other. Um, so the internet could go down tomorrow. Uh, well, I mean, the internet's made up of many, many machines. If you say, you know, Amazon and eBay, if those two are gone, is the internet gone? Well, most of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So, <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, yeah, that's wow. Google well, Wallet is gone. Right. For business. So. <laughs> I can't use my Google calendar. No. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, my, my needs are very small compared to, but I will tell you this over the last five weeks of dealing with internet problems, I've been sweating it, you know, because it's like, I can't do the things that I normally do. And it's kind of, uh, kind of frustrating. You could bring your little recording set down to McDonald's and, you know, rent a little chair. <laughs> <laughs> Grab a cup of coffee. You said free, free, free Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that would be awesome <laughs> that would be cool to have that little recording studio right there in the corner and the manager come over and go are you here for your interview <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. Well, Scott, I tell you what, we have covered a ton of information today, and I, I'm fascinated with uh, just the, un- the I have a better understanding of RAID and, and how it's, uh, you know, how it's put together in a, in a better understanding of somewhat of recovery of it and the things to do and not do. And I just appreciate the, uh, the information you've shared. It's been, been great. Um, if people wanted to find you, what, what's the best way to do that? Um, the easiest way is to hit myheartdrivedie.com. So if they just go to myheartdrivedie.com, there's boxes there where you can send me messages. You can look at classes. You can look at all my previous presentations and links to YouTube. Uh, all that stuff's out there. And I'm happy to answer questions if people email me. Um, I get you know a lot of emails every day, but I try to answer them. And so if anybody's got questions, I try to help people as much as I possibly can. Uh, within the reality that exists, but feel free to to email me or contact me. And I and I do a tremendous amount of forensic stuff as well. That uh, I also have a separate site that's uh, a new site that I've actually uh, redone recently, uh, forensicstrategy.com. So if you go to forensicstrategy.com, you can see the the new look for that company. Oh, very cool. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely go check his sites out. Uh, the, you know, it's got a bunch of information, and like you said all his YouTube stuff. And, uh, he's got some free content out there. That's just, uh, it's really neat to, to watch. I've been watching some over the past few weeks and, uh, just fascinating to see the information out there. Uh, if you guys also, if you want to, if you want any questions, ask any questions, uh, you know, for this show, please email us at mhdd at podnuts.com. And, uh, we can get those questions answered. And if, uh, you want to leave a voicemail, uh, please call one eight 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 or one eight 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 six nine seven zero one six two. You guys can also help support the Podnets Network. The next time you're shopping on Amazon, go to podnets.com slash Amazon. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. And we'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.